2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Frank. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, still pregnant, and here's what's ahead this hour. Stocks have now turned lower, although we're fighting now between positive and negative territory after this morning's big gains. Even after the S&P hit a key technical level, is it Nvidia's fault? The chipmaker shares down eight percent after they suddenly pre-announced second-quarter revenue this morning that was far short of estimates. We will have all the latest. And should the Fed just sit back and let the job market rip, or should they hike more aggressively? We'll talk about which response is right following Friday's hot report with former Fed Governor Randy Crosby, and the Democrats are close to a historic win on climate and tax hikes with the Inflation Reduction Act. The industry's most impacted, and will it propel Dems to a victory in the midterms? What would the political fallout from that be? But first to today's markets, Dom Chu has the number. All right, so Kelly,
3: the numbers here, as you point out, are near the session lows. And I'll just give you some context right now. As Kelly pointed out, we did see some pretty decent gains earlier on. In fact, for the S&P 500, we were up at the highs, north of 40 points to the upside. We're just slightly in negative territory now, down by about 2. 41.43, the last trade for the S&P. The Dow Industrial's up about 28 points, relatively flat on the session right now. But again, session lows, 32,833. The Nasdaq Composite Index, flat for the day, 12,658. Again, a lot of momentum has come out of this marketplace. Technology may be a big part of that story. But one place that we saw a lot of activity early on, but that has also seen fading momentum is in some of those alternative energy electric vehicle type stocks on the heels of that Inflation Reduction Act passage in the Senate, why it could be good for some of these alternative energy type companies. And for that reason, we saw Tesla posting some decent-sized gains, still holding on to some of those. ChargePoint Holdings, one of those other EV charging station plays on there. But check out Enphase Energy, which was very much solidly higher at one point in the day, now down 4.5%. SolarEdge also higher at one point, down 2.5%. And then Constellation Energy has been holding on to some decent gains. Even traditional energy companies with exposure to wind and solar energy, some of those alternative types doing pretty well in today's session. So we'll see whether or not this was a kind of buy the rumor and then sell the news type situation. And then one of the stocks out there that's getting a lot of attention on an earnings miss is Palantir Technologies, down about 12.5% right now. This is one of those companies that has maybe been a little emblematic of the interest rates. Hitting momentum stocks, hitting growth oriented stocks, changing valuation concerns. But Palantir's results did nothing to really allay investor fears about whether or not growth stocks could be a place to invest right now. So we'll watch Palantir shares. Kelly right now down 12.5%, not an S&P 500 company, but still maybe a telltale sign of that growth trade. I'll send things back over
2: yeah, to you. Great point. Single digits below 10 bucks. Dom, thank you very much. Meantime, NVIDIA is on pace for its worst day since May after warning second quarter revenue is more than a billion and a half dollars below estimates. The chipmaker blaming the shortfall on weaker than expected gaming revenue said it's also adjusting pricing and inventory to battle, quote, challenging market conditions that are expected to persist into the third quarter. Now, this is dashing some hopes that the semi stocks can resume leadership after their woeful start to the year. The semi ETF, the SMH, you see they're down about 22 percent since January. But at the same time, it looked a lot worse before that sharp rally since the start of July that has seen the sector surge about 20 percent off the recent lows. So is that run now over for more? Let's welcome in Chris Rolland. He's senior semi uh, analyst at Susquehanna Group. Chris, it's great to see you. And you must have been surprised by that this morning. What did you think?
4: Kelly, we were not that surprised. I don't think the street was that surprised. So we track retail GPU prices. We've seen them crashing over the past two quarters here and retail inventories building up. I would say maybe the one surprise is the magnitude of this miss on gaming. The other uh, side of this is data center. Data center was indeed uh, a, a bit worse on supply chain issues. But I think the smart money knew that something was coming. It was just about the magnitude.
2: It's the stock drop, Chris, though. I mean, 8% tells you this wasn't priced in.
4: This reminds us of 2018 when the stock dropped 50% on the crypto hangover. So there are three things going on today. We have that crypto hangover as Ethereum's moving to proof of stake. We have the reopening or the work-from-home hangover. And then we have a new card lineup, the 4,000 coming at the end of the year. And all of this has created massive inventories out there. This had to be unwound. It's being unwound now. It's a big move, 8% down. Isn't that bad compared to that 50% move that we had in 2018?
2: So then this move since early July, you think it's solid and intact? And if so, what propels it?
4: I do think we're clearing the decks here, which is great news. I don't think we're through the thick of it yet. We wrote in our earnings preview that consumer, mobile, and PC were going to have their third quarter confessions this season, and I think we've seen that. And then auto, industrial, and broad-based will come next Uh, quarter. So we think we're maybe a third to halfway through all of this from NVIDIA. And so, you know, as we look to AI, as we look to the opportunities over the next five to 10 years, they abound for NVIDIA.
2: And leave us with a sense of where NVIDIA falls in your coverage space. Most favorite, middle of the pack. What do you make of everybody right now, given that a lot of of how you'd position seems to depend on which end markets and which products uh, are going to have the most strength going forward.
4: Yeah, we like the Pareto principle. So NVIDIA would end up in the top 20% of our coverage right now, really around this AI opportunity and the fact that they're a language, CUDA, is the de facto software where for AI development. So we're, uh, we're very bullish. Pareto,
2: CUDA, throwing all the terms around. Chris, thank you very much today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Chris Rolland. Now, speaking of supply chains, the Inflation Reduction Act that just passed the Senate includes a big bet on EV battery minerals that are mined here in the U.S. The only problem, are there going to be enough of them? Pippa Stevens is here with those details. Pippa?
5: Hey, Kelly. This is the largest climate funding package in U.S. history, and its aim is to increase renewable energy production while also building out domestic supply chains. But this green future depends heavily on raw materials. With some warning, we simply won't have enough. Here's what Barrick CEO Mark Bristow said this morning on Squawk Box.
6: We don't have enough copper. And again, you've seen the copper price come off because it's always short term. And what we as miners have to do is look long term. And we just don't have the copper to ensure that we can support the, the vision of being a greener planet into
5: the future. And it's not just copper. A host of metals are required, and Biden has called domestic supply chains a matter of national security. Electric vehicles depend on lithium. The U.S. currently only has one lithium mine in operation, and just 2.1 percent of lithium is refined in the U.S., according to Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. Now, lithium stocks are on the move today. Albemarle is the largest producer, with Lithium Americas and Piedmont Lithium not yet in production, Kelly. Do you think this act changes that? Well, so the main issue here is permitting. And I actually spoke to Albemarle CEO, Kent Masters, and he said, okay, great. Yes, the initiatives here are great, but what we really need help with is permitting and they're hoping to get their facility up in North Carolina running, and their target is 2027. Wow. So that is far into the future, and that is an optimistic target. Is permitting a
2: state and local issue, or is it something the federal government can streamline? Because it'd be strange for them to incentivize something that they didn't also pave the way for.
5: So it's great to have that federal support at the top, but it really comes down to state and local. Lithium America's facility out in the West Thacker Pass has been under litigation, you know, for more than a decade just because They do face a lot of opposition from local groups. For Albemarle's new North Carolina plant, that is a brownfield mine, meaning it was previously in production. So they're hoping that that speeds along the process. But, you know, these are resource-intensive industries. And so a lot of people around the new mine can uh, really come out against them. That's fascinating.
2: That's a big problem that uh, for everyone to think about. Pippa, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Pippa Stevens. Coming up, Friday's strong jobs report defying talk of a slowing labor market. And yet key yield curves are inverted and consumer inflation expectations are dropping back down. Up next, former Fed Governor Randy Krosner. Does he think the Fed should get more or less aggressive right now? Plus, from the buyback tax to prescription drugs, there's a lot to unpack from the Senate's Inflation Reduction Act. We'll look at where the real fallout will lie. And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on the markets, which are fighting to stay positive. The Dow, the S&P, the Nasdaq, the Russells, only the S&P in the red right now and just barely, but small gains across the board. We're back in a moment.
1: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
7: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with p a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.
2: Welcome back to The Exchange. The market reacted to Friday's strong jobs report by raising the odds of more Fed tightening. But what if the Fed let the labor market run hot instead? Steve Leisman is here now with more. Steve?
1: Yeah, crazy idea here, Kelly. The market reaction to the surprise that a half-million jobs were created in July, swift and negative. More jobs meant more Fed, according to most in the market. Probability of a 75 base point hike in September hovering now near 70% from around 40%. The terminal or peak rate surging from 340 to above 360 as the market said, you know what? More job creation means more inflation, which means more rate hikes. But It's a bit of a quandary for the Fed. What if more jobs means more supply of goods and services, which are in short supply now, and less inflation? Then putting workers back to work would be part of the solution, not the problem. Take a look here. The U.S. economy in July only just recovered the 22 million jobs lost from the pandemic. That's uh, that's pretty good, except for one thing. The economy is now percent larger, or call it $730 billion, after you take out inflation. That helps explain the tight labor market businesses, Across the economy, scrambling to find workers, some because of growth in their industries. That's a hot economy. But some are just playing catch up with where they were before the pandemic. The result, an economy operating with too few workers, reducing supply and giving pricing power to those businesses who have them. The problem for the Fed, reducing demand is one solution to the inflation problem, but so is increased supply of goods, Kelly, and labor.
2: And the big news this morning, Steve, was it the New York Fed survey? their consumer expectations, some big inflationary drops?
1: Yeah, it came down in a big way. Still too high. Take a look. We have a chart for you. Uh, 6.2% now is the one year ahead. Uh, If it stays that high a year from now, we still have a big problem. But it did come down the most in the the history of the survey, which goes back to 2013, by six-tenths of a percentage point. And then uh, the three-year went down, getting down, and then the five-year... That's, I think, the encouraging thing for the Fed. It's down to 2.3%. That is, in the, a, a five-year window, the public, on average, thinks inflation is going back down towards the Fed's target. I think that has to make them uh, feel relatively comfortable that inflation is not out of control. The other message I think they'll get from that, Kelly, is how tied inflation expectations are to gas prices, yes. which raises a fundamental question – how much should the Fed really be following inflation expectations if they're so tied to gas prices?
2: Well, and it seems until now, gas prices kind of rose with the general price level and now seem to be moderating somewhat. But you're right. What if that divide persists for a couple more months? We can only hope because the worst case would be the gas prices go back up.
1: Right, exactly. And, and we'll have to wait to see what happens with Ukraine, Russia, uh, energy and oil uh, in the wintertime in Europe, especially. Steve,
2: thank you. Steve Leisman. So if the consumer is pivoting in their views towards inflation, yield curves are flattening or inverted, which Fed approach is the right one here? Joining me now is former Federal Reserve Governor Randy Krosner. He's now deputy dean at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And we sort of call this the devil's advocate layout, Randy. We gave you all the possible reasons to come on and say, yeah, the Fed should back off here. And yet, what do you really think they should be doing right now?
6: They should not back off here. The reason that they've had the successes that they've had is because they've been on a very clear path to try to rebuild their credibility after saying, "Oh, all this is transitory; it's not going to be with us that long." Well, you know, a year later, we're getting inflation—you know, CPI inflation eight or nine percent—that's a little bit more than uh, than just transitory. And I think the reason that people think that um, uh, that at least in the longer run that inflation expectations are not going to, uh, or that inflation is not going to rise too much, is because the Fed's taking strong action. If they pivot now, I think all that's lost. And it'll be like the late 70s when they pivoted and then inflation inflation expectations exploded and they had to bring infl- interest rates to double digit levels.
2: You know, it seems though there's still a communication problem because you, me, others might say, as long as they win this battle with inflation, whether or not, you know, a recession happens is is beside the point. Whereas the credibility you're talking about with the public may rest on the Fed avoiding a recession. Do they need to address that?
6: They certainly have to be concerned about that. And I think one of the things that people used to think about the Fed as they would take the punch bowl away when the party really get going. That was what the Fed did for eight years. For the last 25 years, you know, what does the Fed do? Like a good neighbor, the Fed is there something if there's a a downturn. Hmm. So people have to realize that the Fed's mission is to make sure that inflation doesn't get out of control, and that's really devastating if, uh, if it does. I mean, you know, look at countries like Argentina. They're not going to say, oh, gee, the Fed should pivot. Um, they have uh, economic devastation because they have high inflation.
2: Sure. And I think for those who go, no, you know, those extreme cases are just scaremongering. It's hard to understand why even four or five percent inflation might be so pernicious over time. Why nominal GDP so much higher than what we can actually handle is such a problem. I mean, how do you demonstrate that and the way that that could affect the economy negatively?
6: Yeah, sure. You don't want to go just to the extremes. But it, it reminds us that, you know, things can get out of uh, things can get out of control. And, and I think it's really clear what happened in the, uh, uh, the late 1970s, early 1980s in the U.S. When the Fed lost credibility, then they had to build, bring interest rates up so high to bring rates down because if the Fed loses credibility and inflation is at five or six percent. Then it goes to eight, nine, 10 percent. And as the Fed tries to bring uh, the inflation rate down, that's really painful because workers are still demanding six, seven, eight percent. Inflation is only four percent, and uh, that means that uh, it's very expensive to hire workers. That is, firms don't hire workers, demand goes down, and it's only a, a sharp recession that can bring things together. So I think it's really that alternative. What the Fed is trying to do is sort of, as they say, have a softish landing. Hmm. Hopefully, avoid a significant recession and just bring demand down a bit.
2: If we go back to mid July it was the University of Michigan's inflation expectations on that Friday before their uh, sort of upsized 75 basis point rate hike that really pushed them towards taking that almost emergency type action. The unwinding of that now, is that going to affect their psyche in the opposite direction and and lead towards a pause or a smaller than expected cut?
6: Well, I don't think they're going to pause. I think they're still in a pretty I think all the Fed speakers have made it pretty clear they're on a path to continue to to raise rates through the end of the year. You have to remember that the unemployment rate is at near record lows of three and a half percent. So they're in a very good position to continue to try to maintain their credibility, fight inflation, bring it down as quickly as possible while the labor market is still strong. It's going to be much tougher next year when I think the labor market is not going to be nearly as strong to be as tough. Um, And so that's why moving now they, in some sense, they get the best of both worlds. Uh, they uh, they don't get as much uh, pushback, and they're more likely to uh, not have to raise rates quite as much because they maintain their credibility.
2: Right, which goes back to maybe what should have happened last year. What, are, what is the implication of, of if it passes the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the, the political piece of this going to be? Is it going to help or hinder what the Fed's trying to do here?
6: So I don't think even though it's called the Inflation Reduction Act, I don't see a lot in it that's going to reduce inflation anytime soon. I mean, maybe over a very long, you know, five to ten year horizon, uh, but providing subsidies uh, for different uh, uh, d- different groups and with clean energy other things, it's not really clear that that's going to do much to reduce demand or reduce uh, uh, reduce inflation. Um, and in some sense, the Fed will be fighting that because to the extent that it's it's fiscally expansionary, um, they're going to be trying to reduce demand. So I don't think it has. I don't think it's helping the Fed very much.
2: Fair enough. And then I guess the the last piece of this puzzle is gasoline prices, which, as Steve pointed out, we see consumer expectations on inflation basically tracking them up and down. Is that going to be a persistent way uh, to help keep those expectations permanently down? None none of us know where gas prices are headed from here.
6: Oh, for sure. And there's so much uh, that's completely outside of the Fed's control, geopolitical tensions, war, um, other disruptions that, uh, that could come in. Those are the key things that will probably be driving energy prices. I mean, obviously, there's going to be a lot of challenges in, uh, in Europe. And so uh, I think what the Fed does is look more towards the longer term, those five to 10-year-out expectations. And they did move down a little bit. They move a little bit with gasoline prices, but they're not quite as volatile as the, the short one ones. They will take some comfort from that, but they're not going to say all clear. Uh, they're going to say, we need to keep on this because we don't want that. We don't want a 19 late 1970s style thing where the, the Fed pivots too quickly, inflation goes back up, and they got to get much, much higher to bring it back down and, and avoid um, a really tough situation.
2: Yeah. And I guess the final question is, what do you make of the signals from financial markets? So even ignoring the twos tens yield curve, even if you look at three month, 10 year, which is the before I left last week, it was almost inverted. I don't, I don't know if we're there now. <laughs> um, yes, there's a long lead time, maybe a year or so between that inversion and the recession coming. But Again, how important should that development be for a Fed that's trying to figure out whether the stance of of policy is now appropriate?
6: So there are pluses and minuses about where things are. The good thing is that the markets realize the Fed's going to be moving rates up in the short run. uh, With the longer rate down, that has two ways of interpreting it. The positive way is that, ah, people believe that the Fed is going to be successful in bringing inflation down, so we don't have to have a really high inflation premium in the long run rate. The less positive view is that the, inflation's, the the Fed's going to tank the economy, and so there's not going to be any demand for, for investment and demand for borrowing, and so that's why the longer rate is, is low. I think it's probably a little bit of a combination of the two, but more that the Fed has inflation under control and that the economy will turn down, but not turn down too much. I think most Wall Street expectations are if there is going to be a recession, it will be relatively mild, but obviously a lot of that is going to depend on not the Fed, but uh, people in the Ukraine and in uh, Russia and in, in China.
2: Yeah, I mean, we got to go, but it sounds like you think that actually with this aggressive tightening, a soft landing is still possible.
6: It's still possible. Is that the most likely come? Probably not, but is it, uh, is it possible? For sure.
2: 40% we'll call. it. <laughs> <laughs> Randy, thank you so much for your time today. Great to see you. Randy Krasner with the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Still ahead, the small caps are coming off their first three-week win streak of the year. Coincidence or not? We'll ask one money manager, plus a tale of two Chinas. Many companies are blaming Beijing's lockdowns for weakness in their earnings there, but one tech giant is bucking the trend. We'll reveal the name ahead. And as we go to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map with Disney and Dow Inc. leading the way, while McDonald's and Visa are today's biggest laggards, pretty even split there. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back, everybody. We started out strong today. We're trying to stay that way. The Dow was up 306, but currently only up 47 after briefly turning negative. Similar story for the S&P and the Nasdaq. Tyson Foods is among the worst performers in the S&P after the company missed earnings estimates, saying their prepared food business still can't fulfill all orders due to supply constraints. Their shares are on pace for their worst day since the pandemic. March 2020, they're down 7 percent. Barrett Gold higher after the miner beat expectations, in part, thanks to higher copper output. The CEOs, Still bullish on gold, admitting you'd expect gold prices to be hurt by higher interest rates, but noting we haven't even gotten to real positive interest rates yet. Uh, Barrett Gold up about five percent today, and the meme stocks are on the move. AMC, GameStop, Bed Bath all higher. Triple B Y is reportedly the most searched name on Reddit's Wall Street Bets forum today. That helps explain why we're seeing a thirty-eight percent pop in the shares. It's only three dollars though; they're eleven bucks. And GameStop is the only one of these stocks that is still higher. Since January, as you can see, let's get to Bertha Coombs now for a CNBC News update. Bertha. Hey
0: there, Kelly. President Biden and the First Lady are seeing firsthand some of the extensive flooding damage in eastern Kentucky. After this stop, the president participated in a disaster briefing. And within the last half hour, the Pentagon announced another $1 billion worth of military assistance is going to Ukraine. It's the largest single package of U.S. arms and equipment that has been sent to help Ukraine defend against Russia's invasion. And David McCullough, the author who popularized American history for millions of readers, has died at the age of 89. He was awarded two Pulitzer Prizes for his biographies of President Harry Truman and John Adams. The CEO of his publishing firm says McCullough was a national treasure who dramatically illustrated the most ennobling parts of the American Character. Oh, I'm so sorry loss. to
2: hear it. God right? rest his soul. I mean, his books, you've read, they're amazing. The Brooklyn yeah. Bridge one, you know, John Adams, we could, we could go on. It, yeah. Such an asset, just an incredible talent. Everyone should just pick one that sounds interesting and read He's an incredible writer. Uh, Bertha, thank you very much, our Bertha Coombs. Coming up, alternative energy, retail, private equity tech. We're breaking down the winners and losers of the Inflation Reduction Act. This sector could be one of the losers, down 16% so far this year. Why? That explanation when we come back in a couple minutes. Welcome back to the exchange. As we've been reporting, the Inflation Reduction Act is on its way to the House after the Senate passed it yesterday. But will it actually reduce inflation? Let's bring in Elon Moy with what exactly is in the bill and what it all means for Wall Street. Elon?
8: Well, Kelly, Democrats are already taking a victory lap after passing that signature health and climate package through the Senate. Of course, the House still needs to clear the bill when it comes back into session on Friday. But the heavy lifting is done. And today, President Biden indicated he's ready to sign it.
9: There's a whole range of things that are really
8: game changers for ordinary folks. Now, some of it's not going to kick in for a little bit, but it's all good. It's really going to lower the daily. When you sit down at that kitchen table at the end of the month, the plan would cap the cost of insulin for seniors at $35 a month starting next year. Total out-of-pocket spending on prescription drugs would be limited to $2,000 a year starting in 2025, and Medicare would begin negotiating certain drug prices in 2026. And Democrats are also calling this package the largest investment in clean energy in history with the goal of reducing greenhouse gases by 40 percent by 2030. And then, of course, there are the tax changes, a new corporate minimum tax of 15 percent with exemptions for accelerated depreciation and a carve out for businesses owned by private equity, a new one percent excise tax on stock buybacks and $80 billion for the IRS. Now, Democrats acknowledge this isn't everything that the president laid out when he took office, but Kelly, this could be the last major piece of legislation. They get to pass for years. Back over
2: to you. Well, we'll talk more about that in a second, Elon, but I'm curious, not that you're a, 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 a what do we call it, bio expert, but if they're capping the cost of prescription drugs, does that mean that the government would pay the rest of the bill or that simply, simply means they can't charge anymore? That we, you know, often when you institute a, a cap on anything, you, you can end up with shortages. I'm just curious how that would work out.
8: Yeah. So the way that I understand it, Kelly, is essentially that the government would no longer reimburse uh, reimburse drug companies for prices over a certain level once they start to uh, negotiate those prices with Medicare. As far as capping the out-of-pocket costs, I think it's sort of the same thing. The government simply would not pay any more. Um, for those drugs even if the drug companies were to charge more to either the government or to try to pass that on to consumers.
2: Uh, well, very fascinating to see how it works uh, in, in real life. Elon, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Elon Moy, given all these new details, which companies stand to benefit? Which names are poised to lose? And what does it all mean for the midterms? Let's bring in Libby Cantrill now. She's head of public policy at PIMCO. Libby, it's good to have you. What, what are the big picture takeaways here?
10: Yeah, well, Kelly. I mean, there's I think there's the economic uh, takeaway, and then there's the political takeaway. From an economic perspective, you've seen you know various estimates about uh, the, the this bill's impact in terms of the macro economy, both on inflation and growth. From an inflation perspective, does it do much on inflation? Maybe it moves the needle. Very marginally in terms of reducing inflation, both in terms of decreasing the prices of pharmaceutical drugs, increasing the supply of clean energy, but not—you know—those th- things are not necessarily going to to take place uh, in the in the short term before the midterms. Um, uh, but then politically, and this I think is where where Democrats are seeing them trying to take a victory lap. Politically, this likely does help. Um, not only have these you know, pharmaceutical uh, drug you know being able to negotiate drug prices has been a huge priority for Democrats for honestly more than more than twenty years. Um, but but I think really importantly for President Biden and the administration, he's been able to get through these you know big you know climate uh, gr- you know green energy uh, climate investments. This is something that he ran on in 2020, obviously. uh, And he's able now to sort of honor that promise. So I think they're hoping maybe, you know, if not economically, but at least politically, uh, that this is going to be a big tailwind going into into November. What are the odds or the
2: polling saying at this point about the outcome uh, of that midterm election?
10: Yeah, so I mean, look, if you look at, at 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 the at sort of history since World War II in the House, um, usually the House is viewed as sort of a national election. The party in power typically does not do very well on average. The party in power loses 25 seats uh, in the House again since since World War II. So again, it just this passes prologue. Democrats are um, you know have sort of an uphill challenge in the House. The Senate, though, is really I think a toss up. Um, the the Republican Republicans actually have a more unfavorable map. They have more seats up for re-election uh, this, this election cycle. And some of the candidates uh, on the Republican side are a little bit unconventional, uh, particularly in some <laughs> of the ba- battleground states like Pennsylvania, uh, Georgia, and Ohio, and what have you. So, I think the conventional wisdom right now is that the Democrats will likely lose the House. That probably is right, but the margins matter. How many seats do they actually lose? And then I think the Senate very much is a toss-up. And if anything, uh, both this climate bill, but the CHIPS Act and some of the other successes the Biden administration have, have basically made, I think, the Senate even more of a toss-up, you know, probably even the picture even better for for Democrats than it was just a few weeks ago. Yeah, and Elon
2: mentioned, you know, this could be the last major piece of legislation for the party for years, depending on that outcome. Do you think that's right? And If so, are we at the kind of gridlock that investors can typically ignore for a while? I mean, I know Jim uh, Cramer was saying this morning he thinks the Inflation Reduction Act marginally negative for stocks because of the buyback tax, um, although it is pretty small. So does it seem like it's going to be kind of uh, no news on the policy front now for quite some time?
10: Yeah, and I think I think that's I think that's absolutely right, particularly on the taxation front. I mean, if we were going to see major tax changes, they would have happened in this bill. And as you point out, the one percent share buyback excise tax, the tax, the fifteen percent minimum uh, book income tax, you know, those aren't not for nothing, but probably in the grand scheme of things, have you know more sort of micro sector implications than they do kind of more broadly for the economy. But outside of that, this is really the last vehicle for us to see those big tax changes probably until 2025. So I think that is right. Um, the Again, if the conventional wisdom is right, that at least one chamber of Congress is lost for Democrats, probably the House, we should expect Biden's legislative agenda to basically be, uh, you know, sort of frozen. Now, I think importantly, though, the markets will cheer that. But one thing I think that folks are not necessarily paying attention to is that if we do go into recession in 2023, um, we should not necessarily expect Congress to sort of save the day in terms of providing fiscal support. Of course, we've gotten kind of used to the fact that not only has monetary policy been very uh, you know positive for the economy, but so has fiscal policy. And I think that assumption necessarily kind of goes away, honestly, uh, if Republicans take back at least one chamber of Congress. Real quickly,
2: just before I let you go, do you think this will be watered down further to pass the House? I mean, what are — what do you think, if anything, will change between now and, and it signed into law?
10: No, I think, just as the previous reporter was saying, the heavy lifting has been done, unanimity among the 50 Democrats in the Senate. That was really the big litmus test. We don't expect any changes uh, from here on out. So, you know, I think the House will likely uh, pass this bill, this particular bill that was passed yesterday in the Senate, and the president will sign this into law. So I think what we have now is what we should expect to actually become law.
2: All right. Libby Cantrell, thank you for all your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Kelly. Joining me from PIMCO. Still ahead, Chinese stocks are down about 11% this year as the country grapples with its zero COVID policies and the economic fallout. U.S. companies with operations there also feeling the pain from those shutdowns and disruptions, or at least most of them are. The company's warning about China and the one exception next on The Exchange. Welcome back. Companies from Caterpillar to Marriott citing China is a wild card in earnings this season. Not everyone is negative, though. Seema Modi is here to break it all down for us. Seema?
11: So far, the takeaway, Kelly, from this earnings season is that companies are really struggling on the ground in China. For Starbucks, for example, China was the only international region that did not grow revenues by double digits in the third quarter. On Western Digital's conference call, CEO said expectations for smartphone units have come down in recent months, led primarily by the reduced demand in that country. And the challenge is not knowing when the economy will rebound. Caterpillar's CEO said it's too early for us to predict what's going to happen on the ground there. Tesla's CEO Elon Musk said the reason we sold a bunch of our Bitcoin holdings was that we were uncertain as to when the COVID lockdowns in China would alleviate. So it was important for us to maximize our cash position. There were some outliers here. Apple was much more positive. It did see iPhone sales surge, UBS estimating a 25 percent year over year growth in iPhone shipments in China. In the second quarter, its supplier, Skyworks, also betting on a rebound. It said that China is still a market where you can get some very, very strong activity tempered a bit by the lockdowns, which we think are going to abate rather quickly. Now, Gene Munster at Loop Ventures says Apple's success there is due to its product, the iPhone, which remains in high demand, and its relationship with the government, a key focus for CEO Tim Cook when we know he's really prioritized our relationship over the last couple of years.
2: Absolutely. Now, of course, you've got the whole Taiwan thing as well. But the thing about Apple being uh, sort of still doing well, I mean, they also did very well here during the lockdowns. I do wonder sort of if that speaks to the fundamental weakness that we've seen with the Chinese economy. We know people are worried about what's going on in the property space. It's kind of amazing the stock market's only down 11 percent there this year.
11: It is. You're right. I think even though the economy has experienced much more hardship over the last couple of months, clearly certain products are going to stay very much in high demand. Luxury sector hasn't held up as well. Property, as you mentioned, not so much. But I think the provocations around China are also around Taiwan are being watched very closely. So far, uh, the actions have been largely confined to in and around Taiwan, the export ban, the military drills uh, and exercises. And so far, they haven't taken aim at U.S. companies in China. And Gene Munster was saying, you know, if that changes, I could really make it hard for a company like Apple to to navigate that relationship going forward.
2: Absolutely. It remains kind of the biggest, the elephant in the room, let's call it. Seema, thank you. Seema Modi. Breaking news on Boeing. Now let's turn to Phil LeBeau. Phil, what's happening?
9: Kelly, take a look at shares of Boeing. I'm not sure we're going to see a ton of movement on this because we reported it last week, as did others, that the FAA was expected to officially sign off on the inspection protocols that the uh, company has put in place for the 787 Dreamliner. Today, the FAA, just a few minutes ago, officially said, yep, we like what we see from what Boeing has put together. We are clearing these aircraft for deliveries. Now, each individual aircraft will have to be still uh, inspected by an authorized uh, agent for the FAA. But this still clears the way for the resumption of 787 Dreamliner deliveries, and that's going to happen in the next couple of days. American Airlines gets the first one. And so this is important, Kelly, because this is a catalyst for them finally getting the Dreamliner's delivered again, and you're going to see a big improvement over time, not initially, but over time in their cash flow as they once again get the revenue coming in from deliveries of these aircraft.
2: Great point. The share's up 1.4 percent. Phil, thank you. That's helping the Dow climb now about 50 points this afternoon. Coming up, small cap stocks handily outperforming the S&P over the past three months, and there could be more gains ahead, according to one strategist. Why and the names to buy. That's next. Welcome back, everybody. Dow's up 57 points, helped by that Boeing news just now. S&P down one 41.43. Nasdaq down three. Let's look at it from the mid-June lows, though. The Nasdaq up 14 percent. S&P up nine percent. Dow up seven percent. Russell Small Caps up 12 percent. My next guest sees more gains ahead, especially for those small cap stocks. Let's bring in Brian Smolik. He's Hood River uh, Capital Management's principal. And Brian, it's good to see you again. Why the the good big conviction tip. for the small?
12: Well, the space has been bad for the last year and a half. Credit spreads had tightened somewhat. Valuations are really attractive on next year, and a lot of that is around the recession fears that have been built up over the last six months. That's mostly baked in here. And then really it comes down to how bad the CPI is. And as the Fed finally caught up, it seems like the leading indicators on commodities are a lot better you can pick almost any commodity and they've come in 20 to 30 percent which is good we're still concerned about wages that's a high percentage of costs and the jobs report on friday gives us some pause but we still think we're probably in a in an inflation scenario that's going to be looking better and you couple that with valuations and the fact that you can really stock pick in a really inefficient small cap space it leads Uh, to some opportunities for some absolute and relative outperformance.
2: And I should mention you're not the only one who's constructive or positive here. Uh, Carter Worth just put out a note this morning saying he likes the setup from a technical position. So uh, do you think kind of the index broadly or would you tell people be careful of buying the broad basket and stick with individual names here?
12: Well, in small cap, I think it's better to go with individual names just because it's inefficient. You can add alpha there. But that being said, I do think the broader small cap space does look attractive just because it's pricing in asymmetrically asymmetrically a bad scenario for next year. And there's obviously a probability where it could be okay or uh, even better than that. And you have a lot of upside if that plays out.
2: So let's talk about some of them. Um, Celsius, but not that one. But yes, the one you heard about (laughs) in the news recently, Zoom Info, which is not the other Zoom. But uh, so go through some (laughs) of the names that do jump out to you.
12: Yeah, so we did play some offense uh, during the drawdown in the space and in tech. Uh, Zoom Info is growing its revenues at around 45% and its 40% operating margin is trading around 35 times free cash flow. So it's great growth and great value. They had a great earnings report and plowed through uh, any sort of slowdown that you've seen in the economy. It's It's a Salesforce optimization tool and enterprises are obviously latching onto it. Celsius is an energy drink company. They just signed a Pepsi distribution agreement recently. It's growing at over 150%. We think they're gonna do well, whether there's a recession or not, given the market share opportunities. The market's pricing in around a seven, seven and a half percent market share. We think it could potentially be double that or even higher given the quality of the product. And And we also like, oh, sorry.
2: Go ahead, please, yeah.
12: Uh, we also like Kinsale, which is an excess and surplus insurer that's growing around 40%. The street's expecting around 20% premium growth next year, and it should outpace whatever uh, inflation is. We also like Chart Industries, which is an energy infrastructure supplier. And obviously, there's lots of investment happening that all over the world, given what's happening. Uh, with energy scarcity and yeah. and the need for independence there.
2: That's exactly what I was going to say, is aside from your kind of situational place, you've got some of those themes that have been working this year, whether it's energy or insurance, and then a couple of names play them. Any As we go, anything you'd ca- sort of caution people away from?
12: Well, uh, consumer is obviously tough, uh, so that you could have some bad earnings revisions there. Um, but that's really the only area that I see from a top-down level being bad. And obviously, any of the mean stocks are things that are speculative in nature. I'd stay away from those.
2: <laughs> but it's so. a good reminder, you know, when, when the consumer is the weak spot, but also the most visible one, that it can be confusing uh, when you see those headlines and, and draw too much of a conclusion from it. Brian, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time today. Thanks. Brian Smolak from Hood River. Coming up, this fund is down more than 48% so far this year, but there could be a bottom forming. Whether now is the time to add a bit, that's a clue for you to your portfolio. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Before we go, the ProShares Bitcoin ETF was that mystery chart we just showed you. It's down about 50% so far this year. Is the bottom finally in for crypto? JP Morgan says yes. Kate Rooney
13: joins us now with a look. Hi, Kate. Hey, Kelly. Yeah, that is the big question after uh, July and August so far, bringing a little bit of relief for Bitcoin bulls after almost nine months of downward pressure. JP Morgan, among those who now think the bottom is in, a note to clients earlier today highlighting what they called limited contagion from the collapse of a major cryptocurrency, Terra and Luna. There's also a lot of uh, enthusiasm lately around another cryptocurrency, Ethereum. And while prices and trading volumes are still depressed, analysts over there say it appears that the crypto markets have found a floor. Bitcoin prices have also reclaimed two important levels. First, it's above the 200 weekly moving average and above the average cost basis for investors. That's the price where most investors got in. It's about $24,000, according to Glassnode. Volumes are still low, though. On the downside, Glassnode says current network activity suggests there remains little influx of new demand. The crypto rally also coincides with what we've seen Uh, In terms of equity investors, there's been a little bit more of a risk appetite and a rally in tech stocks. Ethereum has been the big winner in the past month, up more than 40% compared to a 10% or so rally in Bitcoin. Crypto-related stocks also rallying more than Bitcoin. Coinbase has been on a tear after announcing a partnership with BlackRock, also seeing a short squeeze play out there. Got MicroStrategy, Robinhood also getting a boost, as well as Block, formerly Square. And then some of the mining names, Kelly, are the biggest winners. Marathon Digital, Riot Blockchain all up more than 50% for the month. Still plenty of headwinds for those who are wondering if this is really a bottom. There's been high profile hacks lately that have weighed on investor sentiment. The SEC has been cracking down on unregistered securities and crypto investors are very much watching that CPI number coming on Wednesday to see if this bullish narrative continues. Kelly. You know, it has been fascinating to watch the
2: Coinbase saga play out, Kate, because on the one hand, You have more concern than ever about sort of custodianship. Like you said, all of these hacks on different kinds of wallets and what's the most appropriate safe place to hold your crypto and and is Coinbase at that place and all the rest of it. Wall Street Journal with a big, long piece about some of the problems that they've had at the same week. that. What did the shares do last week? Double? I mean, it was incredible.
13: It was quite the rally last week, along with a ton of short interest. So you had that BlackRock partnership, which really seemed to, to light a spark there. And then it was one of the most heavily shorted stocks. So that likely sparked a short squeeze and accounted for some of that massive rally. I think it was up like 40 percent last week. And you saw what it was doing for the month. But it is sort of this dichotomy because, like you said, the journal had that piece on some of the bigger issues in the eyes of Wall Street. They've also had to deal lately with the SEC talking about unregistered securities. The downside and the worst case scenario for that company is that all of these tokens, more than 150 that they've listed, end up being unregistered securities. They're really the biggest example in the U.S., the only real publicly listed exchange. So SEC really In some ways, some would say making an example out of Coinbase if they do end up going through with this and saying, hey, guys, these cryptocurrencies are actually unregistered securities. Right. right. Really interesting case study here. If you
2: want to be the Amazon of crypto and, you know, then you now have a problem if you you list literally all of it. Kate, thank (laughs) you very much, our Kate Rooney. Uh, Shares of Palantir meantime getting crushed today on the back of weak earnings. Is it down enough to buy? We'll have answers in three stock lunch on Power Lunch, which begins right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day,
11: same time, same place.
7: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.